Let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time together. We pray that uh, you might open our minds uh, to understanding uh, so that we can, like Paul, speak to the culture of the day and answer in a cogent way and in a way that shows the clarity of your gospel. And we pray that um, this might become not something that we just hear, but something that we're able to use as we talk to those around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's get going. We're going to do a little review first. We're going to talk uh, in this session about postmodernism, kind of a social construct, although they won't call it that, a philosophy that dominates our society. But first, I want to do a little review. We're, we're talking about Weltanschauung uh, overall and what that re- uh, is about. If you remember, it's um, something that every one of us has. Uh, it drives our responses, and it comes in a lot of different varieties. It's a personal worldview. That's what that word means, a worldview uh, of each individual. And so what is a worldview? It's a collection of presuppositions, convictions, and values from which a person tries to understand and make sense out of the world and your life. And so we're examining this through uh, the book, Think Biblically, which is all about having a biblical worldview. So another way to frame this, uh, Weltanschauung, Francis Schaeffer in his book, Um, how shall we then live, says that people's presuppositions rest upon that which they consider to be the truth of what exists. He maintains that presuppositions form the basis of a worldview, and people will live more consistently on the basis of those presuppositions than even they themselves may realize. That worldview lays a grid for the way they see the external world around them, and those presuppositions and worldview form the basis for the values and, therefore, the very decisions that people make. So what is a Christian worldview when we talk about it? We've covered this a number of times, but I think it's important to look at this again and again. This is something that John MacArthur came up with, and he says this is kind of a working definition. The Christian worldview sees and understands God the Creator and His creation that is, man in the world, primarily through the lens of God's special revelation in Holy Scriptures, and secondarily through God's natural revelation and creation as interpreted by human reason and reconciled by and with Scripture for the purpose of believing and behaving in accord with God's will, and thereby glorifying God with one one's mind and life, both now and in eternity. So I think it's a great description. Arthur Holmes, also a professor um, at Wheaton College for more than 40 years, wrote a book called All Truth is God's Truth. He says that there are some unique implications of a Christian worldview when relating uh, the absolute truth that we think about to God. And he says, first of all, to say that truth is absolute rather than relative means that it is unchanging and universally the same. And secondly, truth is absolute, not in and of itself. It doesn't stand by itself, but because it derives ultimately from the one eternal God, it is grounded in his metaphysical objectivity. 
and that of his creation. And third, he says that absolute propositional truth, therefore, depends on the absolute personal truth or fidelity of God himself, who can be trusted in all that he says and does. So the founding, the the background to all absolute truth has to be God from a Christian worldview. So as we're going to look at postmodernism this morning, and I used a number of resources here. Of course, Think Biblically by MacArthur. Also, The Truth War, written by MacArthur also. Uh, The Death of Truth by Dennis McCallum. And then 10 years ago, Phil Johnson gave a presentation here at this church, which he's titled uh, A Beginner's Guide to Postmodernism. So I used some of what he talked about 10 years ago. Some of you may that were here may remember that presentation that he gave. I'd like you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We're going to open this consideration with a look at those verses. Verse 1, it says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Get this, is key always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Boy, that describes, all of those verses describe what we see around us today, and that last part describes human philosophies throughout history. Another uh, something I'd like you to consider was written by Charles Spurgeon a few years ago, 150 years ago, about. He says, the church of Christ is continually represented under the figure of an army, yet its captain is the prince of peace. Its object is the establishment of peace, and its soldiers are men of a peaceful disposition. The spirit of war is is at the extremely opposite point to the spirit of the gospel. Yet, nevertheless, the church on earth has and until the second advent must be the church militant, the church armed, the church warring, the church conquering. How is this? It is the very order of things that so it must be. Truth could not be truth in this world if it were not a warring thing. And we should at once suspect it were not true. Let me read that again. And we should at once suspect that it would that it were not true if error were friends with it. The spotless purity of truth must always be at war with the blackness of heresy and lies. Okay, so how do we understand this postmodern world that we live in? Well, a Western apologist once visited a tribal area of Africa and conducted an elaborate seminar for Christians on how to prove the existence of God. 
Afterwards, a person came up and complimented him on his presentation, but added politely that no one in that part of Africa doubted that God exists. What they wanted to know was which God to serve. The visitor meant well, but failed to understand the specific spiritual questions being asked by that particular culture. So the more one understands about people's ideas, the better one can communicate the truth of the Scripture and the gospel to them. This is why one learns about cults and religions and why missionaries try to understand the cultures in which they live. But not enough Christians in this day and age in the West put much effort into understanding the culture in which they live. New believers who, came, who come into the church each day bring their worldviews with them. And those of us that are already Christians and in the church don't always understand the worldview issues uh, and may not realize how we're embracing non-Christian concepts. Paul warned the Colossians not to allow themselves to be taken captive by philosophy. Most Christians assume that the best way to prevent that is to avoid learning anything contrary to what they believe. But like it or not, worldview issues are all around us, pressing in from the surrounding culture. It's very insidious. Instead of trying to completely shield oneself from the culture, Paul would advise a different approach. Understanding something about the ideas that intrude and learning to discern between truth and error. Biblically speaking, it is the Christian who should be doing the capturing not the other way around. Paul said he destroyed arguments with every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and he took every thought captive to obey Christ. Christians are to tear down intellectual strongholds in order to free those who are deceived spiritually and are held captive by these evil forces. Paul knew the culture of his day. He could quote philosophers, from memory, use their terminology, and examine the views, their views from a Christian perspective. And not enough Christians t- today can do that. Western culture is undergoing some really profound changes that are transforming the prevailing cultural worldview, especially in regard to the nature of truth. Like other periods of change in history, the present one is a mixture of both the old and the new. In order, order to become... Um, avoid becoming captives, and instead of uh, we need to become capable of destroying strongholds so that Christians can do the capturing, we need to go back and look at these past um, intellectual battles. Christianity grew to dominate culture in the Middle Ages, joining faith and what is known by revelation with reason to form a worldview that encompassed all of knowledge. Modernism, a philosophy um, that predominated uh, during that time, rejected, uh, or after that time, rejected the medieval concept that knowledge is based on authority. Modernists based knowledge on the process of objective reasoning from observation, which became uh, their concept of science. By the late 18th century, some began to challenge the supremacy of reason and the possibility of objectivity and the ability to know the world as it is. The 20th century saw increasing doubts about objectivity and the benefits of science, the self 
um, as a foundation for knowing the connection between languages and the world uh, and the very possibility of a worldview. Within Western-oriented cultures today, there is a very uneasy coexistence between that older system of modernism and what is today called postmodernism, the name for an intellectual and cultural movement that reacted to modernism. Starting with Abraham, let's look at how modernism came about. And starting with Abraham, God established the Hebrews as a separate culture. But the church, 2,000 years ago, was born into an existing culture. It shared with that culture and other ancient cultures around at that time the view that the supernatural purposes, that supernatural purposes shape events in nature and history. In spite of unseen forces, the physical world is real, that's what they thought, and can be known and described adequately in language. So early Christians seem to have no doubt that words, surprisingly, words refer to things and that propositions are true when they correspond to reality. Then as time moved on through the centuries and medieval times, men began to form a grand uh, overarching meta-narrative of all knowledge, spiritual, philosophical, and scientific It was thought that all parts of a worldview could be connected. For example, what we believe about logic and mathematics should fit the nature of God. Beliefs about the art should fit what we know about the spiritual nature of humanity. The role of government fits with a sovereign God and a fallen humanity. In keeping with this mentality, Thomas Aquinas believed that there can be perfect harmony between the Bible reason, and science because God is the author of the Bible and the creator of all things. Then for various various reasons, the church's spiritual, moral authority and power began to wane and subside. In the 16th century, the Reformation church split from the Catholic church. French philosopher René Descartes sought Certainty in the midst of all of the turbulence that surrounded that event and events. He systematically doubted everything until he found the one thing he could not doubt, that he was doubting. This led to his famous statement, I think, therefore, I am. And he proceeded to build from there an entire worldview he bypassed the authority of the church and and tradition as the means of knowing self. He thought the self could know reality as it is and was confident that one could accurately know his or her inner states. So, in the middle of the 17th century, at the dawn of the so-called Enlightenment, and around the time of the French Revolution, philosophers Uh, such as Rene Descartes and John Locke began to grapple with all of these questions about how we gain knowledge. And that branch of philosophy became known as epistemology. That's the study of knowledge and how human minds uh, apprehend truth or understand truth. And because Descartes built his worldview on what he could know apart from the presuppositions of church dogma, in classical learning, 
He's regarded as the uh, father of modern philosophy. The Renaissance in which he lived was a time of searching for new foundations of knowledge. People turned um, first to classical civilization and then to the study of nature using observation rather than tradition. Everywhere, people were turning aside from the authority of the church and tradition to find answers independent uh, of those institutions. Explanations for things were in terms of natural rather than supernatural causes during that time. And so theology, which was once uh, once regulated knowledge and life, was becoming a separate field of study, disconnected from everything else. Some of the key figures during this time were Descartes, who was a rationalist, believing that truth is known by reason, starting with a few foundational self-evident truths and using logical deductions to build more sophisticated structures of knowledge on that foundation. Then also John Locke argued uh, instead that human, the human mind begins as a blank slate, zero, and acquires knowledge purely through the senses, and that is known as what we call empiricism today. Immanuel Kant demonstrated that neither logic nor experience alone, hence neither rationalism nor empiricism, could account for all human knowledge, and he devised a view that combined the elements of both. Then Hegel came along, and he argued in turn that even Kant's view was inadequate, and he proposed a more fluid view of truth, denying that reality is a constant. Instead, he said that what is true evolves and changes over time. And so that led to different systems of thought, including the philosophies of Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, and even Marx with his Communist Manifesto. So we might say at this point, parenthetically too, that all of these epistemologies have been proposed and methodically debunked over time, and at least we've seen the failure of them. And everyone is broken down just like uh, a chain, every link is broken. After thousands of years, the very best of human philosophers have utterly failed to account for truth and the origin of human knowledge apart from God. In fact, the one most valuable lesson humanity ought to have learned from philosophy is that it is impossible to make sense of truth without acknowledging God as the necessary starting point. So modernism followed Descartes in regarding people as autonomous and able to relate to truth as individuals. And as individuals, modernism says, We can know our inner selves clearly and coherently. We can also describe truth in language that is objectively and and unambiguously connected to reality. Using language, we can formulate theories that are universally true and independent of all perspectives and social situations such that they mirror reality itself. Does that sound a little confusing? Hang with me here. Everywhere there was an optimism that humanity, and this characterizes modernism, there's an optimism that humanity is steadily discovering truth, solving problems, and progressing to a brighter future. So by the late 18th century, there started to be some cracks in all of this thinking. 
in, in this foundation. Uh, as Descartes and others uh, started to examine this, David Hume showed that we can't conclude even something as basic as one thing causes another by drawing only from our observation of what happens. So if I were to push this uh, podium over, Hume says we can't conclude that I caused this uh, thing to fall over, this podium to fall over. We only see that. And the idea, the all we really know is that one thing follows another. We don't know that I caused this. We only know that I pushed it and it fell over. He says the idea of causality is added to our experience by our mind. So he's saying that there's really no cause behind the things that we observe. That's only a construct in our mind. And then Kant came along and read Hume and realized something was wrong with that idea that we must work only by observation what comes from our senses alone. If talk of causality as anything less than perfect is anything less than perfect legitimate, then we can't know much about the world, and we certainly have no foundation for science. He concluded that knowledge comes not only from our minds, uh, as Descartes thought, and Hume was uh, saying, nor from our senses alone. Um, it comes from both. Our senses give us information, and our mind gives uh, structure to that information. So, modernism never really doubted that uh, more human control was better. That's because they left divine purposes out of explanation of things. That means they can't uh, be observed. Um, Thus, there was no higher purposes than our own. Modernists had no reason to doubt that human purposes are good because they rejected any idea of sin or a sin nature. The fall can't be proved by observation, was their uh, premise. History seemed to confirm their overall optimism about human nature because, for example, there was a long productive peace in Europe after the Napoleonic Wars, after the revolution there. But then all of this uh, began to be rethought because historical and cultural events were colliding with assumptions about the modern age. Confidence in the goodness and perfectibility of human uh, humanity was crushed by two different world wars, a Cold War, ruthless totalitarian states, rise of communism, and perhaps worst of all, after centuries of proposed pro- uh, supposed progress, there was a holocaust in Europe the very center of where modernism uh, sprung out of. And far from being saviors, science and technology were undermining the quality of life with pollution, uh, offering governments unprecedented control over people, and threatening humanity's very existence with nuclear weapons. So all of this started to fall apart. So today, postmodernism has taken on a life of its own in our culture. The church needs to be able to deal with this whole phenomenon, which could be summarized as opposing realism, foundationalism, the correspondence theory of truth, and all universally binding concepts, including distinctions or descriptions. Postmodernity, 
rejects any grand narrative like Christianity that attempts to explain everything. Uh, that's kind of an overarching theory or worldview. So what are some of the characteristics of postmodern thought as they've rejected um, modernity? Let's take a look. One of the first premises is, is that if truth is out there, it can't be known in an absolute sense. And ironically, or not maybe, they say absolutely that there are no absolutes. But they're not even sure about that. So it's really a contradictory um, philosophy. Secondly, reality is a subjective perception within each mind. In other words, objectivity is an illusion. Or what is real to me may not be real to you. Everybody's perception is different. Third, a postmodernist can never insist something or someone is wrong. So tolerance and diversity is a virtue. We are assaulted everywhere we turn today with that line of thinking. It's pervasive and not even questioned. And we have, if you're familiar with the book 1984, we have the 1984 think and the 1984 vocabulary today. Everything's relative. Everything changes. There's no meaning to anything. There's no good. Fourth, suspicious of any truth claim, postmodern thought is suspicious of any truth claim made from authority. If you are an orthodox biblical Christian, you are immediately marginalized because, because you have an intolerant, inflexible view of what is true. You have a doctrinal belief system that is based on revelational, propositional truth, and that's highly questionable if not outright rejected. So the postmodern worldview looks a little bit like this. Subjectivity versus objectivity. Ambiguity versus clarity. There's nothing to be dogmatic about in uh, postmodernism. Definitions themselves are a threat because it attempts to define something. But if we were to define and try to describe postmodernism, we could say that it's generally hostile to any worldview that makes a truth claim. In the postmodern worldview, certainty is regarded as inherently arrogant, elitist, intolerant, and oppressive, and therefore always wrong. No one has anything right. It's characterized by a systematic skepticism and employs systematic deconstruction. If you've been to college the last few years or familiar with some of the teachings in some college classes, you hear deconstructionism used quite a bit, and that's describing the process in which they look at something and try to deconstruct it, break it down to its elements, not to arrive at any conclusion, but just to destroy any premise that an idea might be built on. The only goal of postmodernity is to deconstruct, and that means to eliminate certainty, question authority, obfuscate clarity, and undermine objective truth. These ideas that they want to deconstruct are the exact hallmarks, the exact 
exact characteristics of a Christian worldview. Certainty, authority, clarity, objective truth. In one sense, to be sure, the demise of modernity and the resulting blow to rationalistic human arrogance is certainly something to celebrate. But from a spiritual perspective, the rise of postmodernity has been anything but a positive development. Postmodernism has resulted in widespread rejection of truth and the enshrinement of skepticism. Postmodernists despise truth claims. They also spurn every attempt to construct a coherent worldview, laboring, labeling all comprehensive ideologies and belief systems meta narratives or grand stories. And such meta narratives, they say, can't possibly do justice to everyone's individual perspective, and therefore they're always inadequate and always untrue. So let's kind of back up a little bit and review some of these different thought systems. We've got, first of all, a pre-modern thought that lasted for over 2,500 years from Greece all the way up to the Enlightenment, to the French Revolution. And they believed in objective, ultimate truth. They believed in the supernatural, whether that was God of the Bible or some other supernatural force. And their authority was from God, whatever God that was. Uh, And they saw that as a single supreme authority. And then we came to the modern era. And that's been around for about 250 years and started with people like Thomas Paine and Descartes and others who elevated science and human reason. And they believed also in objective, ultimate truth, but they said um, that it didn't come from the supernatural. It didn't come from God. They didn't deny God, but they said that God was irrelevant in this whole thing. They said that the authority, the ultimate authority, came from science and human reason. And that led to Darwinism, socialism, Marxism, fascism, and the liberal theology that dominated the last century, for much of the last century. And it also led, as we've referred to, to the most violent century we've ever seen in human history. All of the things that happened, the Holocaust, not only in Europe, but in Southeast Asia and other places, horrible things happened. And then we come to postmodernity, postmodernism, and that looks like this. It rejects or coexists with modernism at some level. Um, it has, it says that objective, ultimate truth is unknowable, uh, and that we can't really know anything about um, anything in any final sense. So it's anti-dogmatic. It also says that uh, there is some type of supernaturalism, but it has no authority. So it's what we would call mysticism. There's no authority behind some supernatural element. And then, I hope this shows, I guess not all of it. No, there says there's no single ultimate authority. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. Does that sound familiar? It also leads to what we call today open theism, that God has no ultimate authority. Okay? And that also, we might just uh, note at this point, this is kind of why Islam is opposed to the West, not only because of Christianity, but also because of this postmodern thought which declares there's no real authority. 
no God, and certainly not Allah. You follow that? So Christianity, biblical Christianity, is against all these philosophies and thought processes because they represent a worldview diametrically opposed to the God of the Bible and the gospel itself. Unfortunately, much of the postmodern way of thinking is being and has been adapted into the church, starting with men like Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and others saying that doctrine and its reliance on propositional biblical truth is something that is a little too harsh. After all, we can't be dogmatic about anything, can we? We can't really know truth, can we? So let's take a look at how these worldviews that we're talking about affect our views on various subjects. So, number one, human nature. We see that modernism, uh, human thinks of humans as purely material machines. We live in a purely physical world. Nothing exists beyond what our senses perceive. Postmodernity says no opinion. They don't have any opinion on this issue, but they're suspicious of anything that makes any dogmatic claim to anything or to any type of knowledge. And biblical theism or biblical worldview says that humans are only are the only beings on earth created in the image of God. They are both spiritual and material. Then on free will, humans under modernism are self-governing and free to choose their own direction. People are the product of their culture and only imagine that they are self-governing under postmodernity. So they're only the product of their culture and only imagine in their minds that they have anything to say about what they're doing. And, of course, the Bible says, in our biblical view, says that human free will has been drastically diminished by our fall from grace, but we still have responsibility for uh, our choices and for our remaining free will. People's desire to be autonomous is sinful, and we need to be dependent on God as we were created to be. So that's how they view free will. So let's take a look at reason. How do these different worldviews look at that? Well, modernism says that people should be rationalistic optimists, and that characterizes uh, modernism, optimism. They should depend only on the data of their senses and reason. They also say, um, postmodernity says there is no such thing as objective rationality. Uh, That is, that reason is unaffected by bias. In the sense, modernists use the term. So they say that rationalism is a myth. It's made up. You can't really reason through anything. And then the biblical view of that is says that reason is necessary, after all, we're created in the image of God, but not sufficient for understanding reality. Reason can disclose truth about reality, but faith and revelation need to be added into that equation. Okay? The observation of creation, as Scripture tells us, tells us about God, but it's not comprehensive. It's not complete. We need the biblical revelation for that. 
So let's look at how these different things, uh, worldviews, look at their view of progress. Well, modernism says that humankind is progressing by using science and reason. We're on an upward push toward perfection, I guess. Postmodernism says progress is a code word used by modernists to justify domination by European culture on other cultures. Don't we hear that all the time today? We oppress the Indians. We oppressed everyone. That, you know, we, we have a built-in bias against anybody that's not exactly like us. And then the biblical view is that humans are not progressing towards humans apart from Christ, I should say, are not progressing towards any glorious future. However, advances in science and technology and whatever uh, relieve suffering and prolong life, and those things can be considered good. There are some good things that come out. So if all of that's confusing a little bit, I found this last chart here, which will explain everything to you. Very simplistic, summarizes three worldviews here very, very plainly. So does that make sense to you? So I hope that explains it. One hand, pre-modern thought, even biblical thought, says God made it. Modern says we're going to get better. Postmodern, who knows? So we could turn that off. I think I'm done with that. <laughs> Don't want to distract you too long here. So what are we going to do with this? If understanding this is challenging, constructing a Christian response is even more so. It would be simple just to reject everything and to do what. Uh, to do with what's called postmodernism, but like modernism, it occasionally has some valid insights into human knowledge and therefore is helpful in evaluating current world views. Modernism accepted the idea that truth is objective and universal, which fits our Christian worldview, but it also gave a privileged status, status to naturalism. Under modernity, supernaturalism of any kind had to be proved, but since drawing conclusions conclusions from observations, as is the scientific method uh, and was the preferred way of knowing, gathering sufficient evidence for religious belief was difficult. Postmodernity highlights the limits of the human perspective and difficulties with language. It also questions intentions of humans. From a Christian perspective, it corrects some of modernism's excessive optimism about mankind's ability to find truth apart from divine revelation, and it has a more realistic fall of human nature. On the other hand, postmodernity does not consider the possibility and implications of revelational, propositional truth from a creator, especially one who has formed the human mind and therefore can illuminate it. We can't afford to be apathetic about the truth of God that he's put in our trust. It is our duty to guard, proclaim, and pass that truth on to the next generation. As it said in 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 through 21, we who love Christ and believe the truth embodied in his teaching must awaken, must awaken to the reality of the battle that's going on around us, the battle in the thought world that we're not even always aware of. In one narrow respect, the driving idea behind the emerging church, 
church is correct. The current climate of postmodernism does does represent a wonderful window of opportunity for the church. The arrogant rationalism that dominated the modern era is already in its death throes. Most of the world is caught up in disillusionment and confusion. People are unsure about virtually everything and don't know where to turn for truth. However, the absolute worst strategy for the gospel presentation in a climate like this is for Christians to imitate uncertainty or to echo the cynicism of the postmodern perspective and, in effect, drag the Bible and the church and the gospel into it. Instead, we need to be affirming against the spirit of the age, against this type of philosophy, and say that God has spoken with the utmost clarity, authority, and finality through his Son. And we have the infallible record of that message through Scripture. Postmodernity is simply the latest expression of worldly unbelief. Its core value, a dubious ambivalence toward truth, is merely skepticism distilled down to its purest essence. There is nothing virtuous or genuinely humble about it. It is a proud rebellion against divine revelation. In fact, postmodernism's hesitancy about truth is exactly antithetical to the bold confidence Scripture says is the birthright of every believer. Such assurance is put there in each one of us by the Spirit of God, at least in the, put there in the, those who believe. We need to make the most of that assurance and not fear to confront the world with the, that message. The gospel message, in all of its component facts, is a clear, definitive, confident, authoritative proclamation that Jesus is Lord and that he gives eternal and abundant life to all that believe. We who truly know Christ and have received that gift of eternal life have also received from him a clear, definitive commission to deliver that gospel message boldly as his ambassadors. We are likewise not, if we are not likewise clear and distinct in our proclamation of that message, we are not being good ambassadors. But we aren't merely ambassadors. We are simultaneously soldiers commissioned, like Spurgeon was talking about, commissioned to wage war for the defense and dissemination of the truth in the face of countless onslaughts against it, against postmodernity. We are ambassadors with a message of good news for people who walk in a land of darkness and dwell in the shadow, in the land of the shadow of death. And we are soldiers charged with pulling down ideological strongholds and casting down the lies and deceptions spawned by the forces of evil and by false philosophies. Take note, our task as ambassadors is to bring good news to people. Our mission as soldiers is to overthrow false ideas. We must keep those objectives straight, not get those confused. We are not entitled to wage warfare against people. 
or to enter into diplomatic relations with anti-Christian ideas. We're not entitled to embrace postmodern ideas. Our warfare is not against flesh and blood. Our duty as ambassadors does not permit us to compromise or align ourselves with any kind of philosophies like that, religious deceit, or any other kind of falsehood. So if that sounds like a difficult assignment, you're right, it is. And Jude, in his epistle, certainly understood this. He wrote to people who were struggling with these very same issues. He nevertheless urged them to contend earnestly for the faith faith against falsehood while doing everything possible to deliver souls from destruction, quote, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So in conclusion today, I want to read to you what two men had to say about this. Chuck Colson wrote 14 years ago in Christianity Today, and I pulled several different parts from his article here, and he said, postmodernism has radically altered the way many in this generation think about life's most, most basic suppositions. When we speak of truth, meaning binding absolutes, our postmodern neighbors hear just one more opinion among many. The biblical story, which we present as divine revelation, is seen merely as one of many equally valid cultural narratives. This makes moral propositions increasingly problematic to postmodern listeners. For instance, how can we argue for the common good when postmodernists don't believe in a common good? Seeking instead, as philosopher John Gray put it, merely to reconcile conflicting goods. There's a lot of goods out there. How do we just reconcile this, in other words? And he goes on. We lack even a common language for moral discourse. When we use the term liberty, for example, we mean the classic definition famously articulated by Benjamin Franklin, the right to do what is right. That's what we think of liberty meaning. Our founders tied freedom, the highest political goal, to moral truth. But postmodernism unties that knot. And today when people hear the word liberty, they think the definition is the unrestricted right to do what one pleases. And Colson continues, postmodernism must be confronted, not accommodated. We must challenge its false presuppositions, lovingly explaining that there is truth and that it is knowable. In order to reach today's culture, seminarians, pastors, laity, not unlike foreign missionaries, must learn to translate for today's postmoderns. For example, if we say the truth shall make you free, it means one thing to us. Truth, that is Christ, makes us free from sin and death. But to the postmodern ear, it means my preference will make me free to do whatever I want. So without translation, this becomes an invitation to cheap grace in the extreme. Colson concludes, he says, we dare not embrace postmodernism. The gospel is not a matter of soothing feelings or rewarding experience, although it may do both of those. It is the truth that postmoderns can stake their lives on.
So one more man that we need to hear from, Martin Luther, threw down the gauntlet at the feet of every Christian in every generation after him when he said this, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages... There the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides if is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a propositional truth, a revelation about yourself that we can have certainty that we can understand your authority and that we can have that with clarity and that we can understand objective truth. We pray that we might be bold in communicating that message within our culture so that we are good ambassadors and that we are good soldiers on your behalf and that our efforts might bring glory to Christ. We pray that our words might be effective to those around us and that they might hear the gospel clearly. Father, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.